Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay. I'm going to pause to other people. In this episode, it's me, DR, Kai, and Miles talking about all the news that you didn't hear. And then I sit down with Anusha Hussain to talk about her new book, The Pain Gap, How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. My advice for this week is to have the tough conversation, even when it's uncomfortable, even in its imperfection. Recently, I had a tough conversation. I knew it was the right thing to do. I, I was like working my way through it in real time. And uh, it was imperfect, uh, but important and necessary. And I feel like in our lives, there are a lot of things that we need to do and say that are, that are imperfect or we're waiting for the perfect thing or we are trying to find the best way. And sometimes you just got to work through it. So go do the thing. Have the conversation. 2021, uh, the truth is always the best story to tell. Let's go. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. My news today is about Alzheimer's disease and other dementia in Black and Latina women. It turns out, and I did not know this until I read this article, that about 6 million Americans have dementia. Two-thirds of them are women. Black people are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia compared to white people. Latino people are one and a half times more likely And even though there's an elevated risk for our communities, Black and Latino people are less likely to receive a diagnosis than white people. This is problematic for many reasons, as you can probably guess. That means that our treatment, our access to treatment is limited. It means that we can't plan appropriately for our families. And lots of times it means worse health outcomes. Many of you know that these disparities come from systemic gaps. We have a lack of culturally competent providers. There are socioeconomic inequities, a mistrust of doctors. There are stigma about symptoms of dementia. Education is not tailored to reach our high-risk communities. And there's a basic lack of literacy about memory health in the United States, most of you think that loss of memory is a normal part of aging, but apparently it's not scientifically. And in the same way that your doctor can monitor your vital signs from year to year through your annual checkups, there are ways that you can monitor people's cognitive behavior year to year through their annual checkups. In fact, you need those baseline numbers to understand when people are in cognitive decline. Many people don't know that the annual wellness visit that is usually covered by your insurance or at least the one that is covered by Medicaid also covers a yearly cognitive assessment, but most people don't know about it and so they don't access it. This is a huge issue because early detection actually provides the opportunity for early stage treatment. Family members and caregivers who are usually Black and Latino women need to know the warning signs to look for. They need to know what to do after diagnosis. And there are a number of clinical trials and new drugs that are available if you're able to diagnose in time. Early detection also plays a huge role in how people want to handle their affairs. You have the opportunity to plan financially, to plan legally, to plan for how you want your wishes to be carried out. One of the downsides of a dementia or an Alzheimer's diagnosis is that we often worry about a loss of liberty, autonomy over decision-making. But the truth of the matter is, if we are not vigilant, then we see things happening like uh, the family that is lifted up in this article where a young woman, Aisha Atkins, was watching her mother Um, cognitively decline. And she went to one doctor and her mother was diagnosed as having menopause-related stress and, and prescribed antidepressants. Like many Black women in the healthcare environment, she did not feel seen or heard. And so over the course of two years, she got her mother treatment from other doctors. She saw a neurologist six months later at an Alzheimer's research center 
Um, They diagnosed her mom with suspected early onset Alzheimer's and prescribed a medication that actually worsened her symptoms. And it wasn't until two years after that first neurology appointment that she got the appropriate diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia, which is the leading cause of dementia for people under age 60. Her mom was 56 years old. And so if we are not watching out for our parents and our aunties, because I'm not that far away from 56 these days, then we miss opportunities to provide the kind of care that Aisha was able to give her mother. Unfortunately, the diagnosis came too late for her mother to really outline how she wanted to be treated. And Aisha ended up having to take care of her mother to quit her job and reorient herself in her 20s and 30s to be able to take care of her mother. We love our family members. We all want to take care of them. And I brought this to the pod because I had no idea that women were more likely to suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's. And I sure didn't know that Black people and Latino people were one and a half to twice as likely to have Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia as compared to white people. And so I wanted to raise this so that um, when we see our family members not remembering or when we see them not being able to do things that they used to do, that it's incumbent upon us to not just take people to the doctor and try to get the right diagnosis, but it's incumbent upon us to persist and persist and persist because we know that the healthcare system is not designed for us and doesn't work with us. There's a ton of new research on Alzheimer's and other dementia-related diseases, and the Alzheimer's Association is working with the African-American community through outreach and partnerships with churches, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, the Black Nurses Rock Foundation. Um, They are doing community outreach to be able to reach our mommies and our grandmas and our abuelas and our abuelitas to help them understand what we need to do. And I brought this to the pop because we need to be aware of these things. Today, I want to show my respect for mystic and scholar Maladoma. Patrice Somme, he passed away this week, and he was a amazing, prolific mystic scholar, and he really did his work to really bridge uh, a kind of an a- ancient African intelligence with mo- with it, with like a modern spin on it, and all just looking at things with uh, the modern world through that ancient African lens, rather. So really looking at what we were going through, what we were suffering through as um, African people, as um, Black American people, and really comparing it and 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 critiquing it through that lens, and keeping certain traditions and ideas that. Um, are part of the um, ancient, specifically West African tradition, alive and and, and integrating intellectual ideas with spiritual ideas and making both of those things worthy and necessary and 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 wise. It, it was it, he he was just one of my favorite people to talk to. Talk, uh, excuse me, favorite people to listen to. I never got to speak to him. He also really advocated for LGBT and queer. Identity, not in a way where it was with a parade, but through his text and through conversations, really advocated that a lot of the things that we see as um, homophobic and transphobic and queerphobic, these are new things that we learned through colonialism. Um, and he was 
talking about that since the uh, late, mid, and early 90s. He was talking about how our gaze when it comes to uh, gay folks and, and, que- and queer folks and trans folks is really warped by uh, European colonialism and we had a and queer folks, LGBT folks had a space in African tradition. One of his uh, one of the things that he said in one of his um, uh, essays and interviews that I wanted to read was this as follows. I don't know how to put it in terms that are clear enough for our audience that I think needs as much understanding of this as this gender issue as people in this country do. But at least among the the Dagara people, gender has very little to do with anatomy. It is purely energetic. In that context, a male who's physically male can vibrate female energy and vice versa. That is where the real gender is. Anatomic differences are simply there to determine who contributes what for the continuity of the tribe. It does not mean there's a kind of line that divides people on that basis. And that is something Something that also touches on who, what has become um, known here as gay or homosexual issue. Again, in the culture that I come from, this is not the issue. These people are looked on essentially as people. The whole notion of gay does not exist in this indigenous world. It does not mean that there are not people that uh, there who feel that way, uh, that certain people feel in this culture that has led them to be referred to as gay. Again, um, Maladoma really was just investigating and interrogating gender and sexuality and in and really pushing against the binary that we often take as just how things are. And it's just not how things are. This is something that has been projected onto us. And I found it so affirming that somebody who was a straight Black man who was also really invested in African culture and mysticism was also not homophobic and not transphobic. I think we, um, you know, even on the internet, monikers like Hotep and and, and things where um, we, we automatically think if a Black man is maybe too inside of their Afrocentric culture or mysticism that it probably also comes with a dose of transphobia and homophobia and queerphobia, but his did not. It came with um, expansive queer politic and it came with love and he'll be sourly missed. And I know that we were all, uh, everybody who's been touched by his work will continue to lead his legacy in creating um, technologies and ideas and theories that fit the African past, present and future. So my news is about Las Vegas, and it was in the Washington Post. It's titled, Sex Traffic Kids Are Crime Victims. In Las Vegas, they still go to jail. And it really blew my mind. You know, what what happens is in Las Vegas, there's still a large economy of sex traffic kids of all gender identities. So trans kids, uh, queer boys and girls, like straight boys and girls, every. All types of kids are being trafficked, and by by kids I mean under 18, are being trafficked in Las Vegas. And what happens is, is that it is often easier for the police to arrest the child than it is for them to get the trafficker. And it's dangerous for the kid to get arrested because if the kid gets arrested and they don't cooperate or whatever happens and they get released, it's actually really dangerous for them when they go back to the the actual trafficker, the John, because there's this idea that you should have actually made a set of decisions so the police couldn't find you, right? But the thing that really blew my mind is that in Las Vegas, historically, and, and actually still today, as the article notes, is that the strategy is to arrest the young people because so the system is like the arrest makes it easier to put you into services, right? That like by arresting young people, that's how they get 
away from the person trafficking them. That's how they get access to resources. That's how they get connected to advocates. And it's like, wow, what a world that we live in where people really do think that putting children in cages who are victims of sex trafficking is the best solution. And Las Vegas passed a law that said that in 2022, there's going to be a, a, a new way to do this. There's going to be essentially a dedicated uh, space for trafficked kids to go so they can enter the recovery into society process or the re, re, reinstitute into society and away from the trafficker. And there'll be a dedicated set of resources. But, you know, it's while the judge, one of the main judges who deals with these cases, he acknowledges that like the arrest strategy doesn't work. The advocates are like, there are a million ways that you can get resources without arresting kids. But I really didn't, I had no clue. And, and you know, the other thing that is really tragic is that there are a set of kids who you know, they don't cooperate or they're not from Nevada. So they go back, they get sent back to California or they can't get reconnected with their parents. They get put into the foster system or they sort of disappear again off the grid. It's like, I just didn't even, I hadn't considered the subset of young people who are sex trafficking victims that we have literally just essentially decided not to build an infrastructure for. Like we just didn't. And they are falling through the gaps. They are remaining victims. If we are throwing them in a jail cell and calling that the best gateway to services, if the transition away from the trafficker into back into their home or reintegration is through foster care or other processes not designed to deal with this issue, you know, it talks about in a California community that there are like two foster care programs that even specialize or have any sort of degree of specialization in sex traffic victims. And it just, this is not an area that I had known much about before. It's not something that we'd focused on in in our organizing. And really it blew my mind. I just didn't know anything about uh, the economy of sex traffic kids and the relationship between that and how the police funnel kids into jail cells as a mechanism of getting services. And it's like, there has to be a better way. So I left this with, uh, way more questions and, uh, you know, want to find somebody to bring on the pod to to be an expert to talk about this in, in Nevada. So I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to find somebody to help us all think better about what solutions look like. But this is one of those things that like impacts a, a subset of young people uh, and it doesn't make the national conversation often, but it is important. So I wanted to bring it here to share. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. 
even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Let's get into a new shape thing. Now, the thrill of the American dream can be misleading, especially when it pertains to quality of healthcare, specifically quality of healthcare for women and birthing mothers in the country. She uses her book, The Pain Gap, to recount her memory as a Bangladesh native giving birth in the U.S. and almost losing her life on the delivery table. Despite her work as a feminist policy analyst focusing on women's health legislation, she was, for the first time, exposed to how dangerous the American healthcare system could be up close and personal. I knew she was jolted out of her misconception of comfort and safety within U.S. hospitals, and she wanted to learn more about the millions of other women facing a similar plight. And here's the book. Following in the footsteps of feminist manifestos such as The Feminine Mystique and Rage Becomes Her, The Pain Gap explores real women's tales of healthcare trauma and medical misogyny with this meticulously researched, in-depth examination of the women's health crisis in the U.S. How can folks be empowered to bring about the healthcare revolution women need? How do we do it? Let's find out with Anusha Hussain. Here we go. Anusha, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I am so honored and I am a big fan. So thank you for having me. So I'm, uh, I, one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk to you is that I get to learn about a set of things that I don't know as much about. And your experience was so interesting to me. Can you, can you start by telling us how you got involved in policy, how you got involved in the work around women's health, like what was your entrance into that work? And then I want us to talk about the book. You know, when you get to a point where when you write a book or you get to a point in your work where you have, where it starts to kind of make sense, you know, like everything that happened in your life, <laughs> all the things that have happened that have led you to this point, when it's happening to you, 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 none of it really like makes sense. Like why, how I got into the policy world, how I ended up working on women's health um, had nothing to do with this dream I had to write this book. But now everything has kind of come full circle. You know, I mean, I grew up in Bangladesh, which is Dhaka, Bangladesh, which is right next to it's a small country, right next to India. But we're kind of this huge development star. You know, we're kind of known for empowering women. We're the country that gave birth to microfinance and Grameen Bank. So I grew up, you know, watching America really implement create, develop, and successfully implement, you know, safe motherhood initiatives in, in Bangladesh, really kind of introduce the concept of public health. And uh, I never, I, ne- I kind of grew up thinking that healthcare in America was like the movies, you know, just uh, amazing. And I actually, <laughs> amazing and always successful. I mean, when we were growing up, even though I grew up very privileged, you know, um, when we were growing up, when we heard that somebody was going to the States for any kind of treatment or medical care, you know, we were just like, wow, that person is, you know, is going to live. <laughs> that person has, has a real shot. And then, of course, you know, you fast forward to almost, I mean, I'm 41 now and my daughter is 10. And so you fast forward, you know, like two decades and I almost died giving birth in America while I was a feminist policy analyst in Washington, D.C. I was working on global health legislation, and I had no idea not only that it was possible to die giving birth in the world's richest democracy, but that America was and still is in the midst of a maternal health 
um, crisis. So it's a very ironic story. And the reason I started working on Capitol Hill on legislation in the first place was because this was back in 2001, 2002. And so the U.S. had just gone into Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, that issue of Afghan women's rights, and there was so much political will at that time, and right at the start of, of the U.S. invasion, um, I really, really wanted to be a part of that movement. I had no clue about the history of Bangladesh in terms of you know, the birthplace of microfinance and, and all those other things. So now why do you, why is the book called The Pain Gap? The reason it's called that is because, you, as you know or may not know, there's a lot of gaps that women have to deal with. There's a gender gap. Um, there's a pay gap. There's a credibility gap. But there's also a pain gap. Women's pain is not believed, not taken seriously, and uh, often dismissed and undertreated. So that's why it's called the pain gap. And, you know, I think about Serena. Like, I think about Serena in the hospital. It's like, yes. even with money and fame, people, they still didn't believe her about her own pain. The Serena Williams story is so important. Um, and you guys can edit this however you want. But, um, you know, when she went public with her story, uh, people were so shocked. Right. Because the, the understanding is the thinking was pre pandemic where we could still, you know, debate if racism was real or if racism exists. You know, now I think the pandemic has really kind of made that race, the role of race in healthcare and everything in America kind of undeniable. But when that story came out, people were so shocked, um, not necessarily women of color, but other white people were so shocked because the understanding was always that black people were doing something wrong. Right. Because what I have found out, it took me a, a good 10 years to figure this out, that America's maternal health crisis is actually a black maternal health crisis. You know, white women are dying in childbirth, but in America, women of color are two to three uh, times more likely to die than their white counterparts. But black women, it's always starkest between uh, black and white, those two groups. And the black women are uh, 243% more likely to die giving birth in America and we know now that education, fame, money, nothing will protect you from the color of your skin because, I mean, the Serena Williams story came out and she is like, what, the top athlete in the world? She's paid millions of dollars to know her body. She was like, I have a blood clot. Like, she knew it. She was coughing. You know, she was being dismissed. And finally, they took her in and they found a huge blood clot. She was uh, taken back to surgery. But she could have very easily died. And it happened to Beyonce as well. But now we actually have the stat that black women who are college educated are five times more likely to die in childbirth in America than a, than a high school, a white woman with a high school degree. So, you know, before you could be like, oh, you know, black people are not educated. Oh, it's because people of color, X, Y, and Z. There are some health issues like hypertension, anemia. Yes, that is very specific to African-American women, but that it's racism, not race, that is killing uh, women of color in America. I want to start with the first chapter, and, and why do you talk about your mom and your nanny? Like, why are they the way that we enter this story with you? Well, it's so hard to write a book, and I really had to fight to write this book in the middle of a pandemic with my husband. <laughs> who I love so much. Um, but yeah, you know, to have that uninterrupted time as a mom. And when I finally got it, I kept thinking that the story and my journey with 
maternal health, working on it, started with me and my birth story. But once I got that quiet that I needed to write the book, I, I remembered my nanny. And um, I don't know why I'm, I get so emotional about it now, Jerry. Like, I, I came to the States when I was 18 to go to college, and I never told anyone the story. And when I started writing the book, it just came out. And now whenever anyone asks me about her in an interview, I get so emotional. Um, but I also feel like she would have gotten a real kick knowing that I put her in the opening chapter uh, of my book. So um, that's just where my mind went, right away where my mind and my heart went. And that chapter came out pretty fast, you know. I wanted to know, too, you know, in I think the third chapter, you talk about uh, that you talked to 100, over 100 women in preparation for the book. What was that like? Like, what, what, what surprised you? What what were you like, wow, this is a theme that I wouldn't have known was a theme. Like, how are those conversations? And you, you know, obviously Great. the book concludes, yeah. but how, what was that like? Um, well, as you can tell, I love to talk, um, but I really love women's stories. And what shocked me right off the bat was how everyone had a story. Like, that's where I started. I started this book by talking to women. And um, I was shocked at how every woman has a story. Every woman has a medical misogyny story, has a sexist story, dealing with their doctor, not being believed, you, you name it. And then every woman of color has a sexist and racist story. So then I realized that this is actually a, a kind of a, a scandal that no one is talking about and women aren't really talking about because we know we're not going to be believed. And tell your book. And here we go. Yes, exactly. That's a my book. This is a real conversation starter. Now, one of the things, too, that I, that like, you know, a lot of things that were new to me, you talk about clinical trials in the book. Can you tell us why, like, what, what is the lesson there? What I really love about my book, and it happened very naturally, was that it goes, you know, from my personal stories to women's stories to there's a lot of hard data in the book. There's a lot of research that went into this book. And what I really love now is that a lot of things, not love, but I'm so happy because a lot of things that women have been saying or, or people of color have, have suspected for a really long time, like we now have the research to back it up, um, which we didn't before. There still needs to be a lot more research. Um, but I was absolutely mind blown about the systemic way and women have been excluded from clinical trials and medical trials in the world's richest democracy. I mean, it is like infuriating and also it's just mind blowing. I cannot believe it. I can't believe people are not talking about this all the time. And while I was getting infuriated, finding all this research that, you know, the NIH, the National Institute of Health was not even, there was no mandate to include women in their research until 1991. And even then, you know, even now there's like big problems. It hasn't, like, gotten any better. And, and they are not also, forget women, they're, it's not even required to be diverse, racially diverse. So the standard for health in America is a white, middle-aged man. And it has serious health consequences for everybody. But, um, of course, in my, in my book, I'm focusing on women. And while I was writing about it, uh, the COVID vaccine trials happened. And we saw women be systematically excluded again pregnant women from the tri- from the trials of you know perhaps the most anticipated vaccine of our lifetime um and it's a very interesting thing 
there's kind of like an obsession, I feel like, in American medicine with protecting the unborn baby or like the fetus and a complete disregard for women's health uh, and living, breathing woman. And I mean, I think I went on TV a few times just being like, pregnant women want to be tested on. We, we don't have a vaccine for everybody until we have a vaccine for pregnant women. And now we know that all the vaccines are fine. And they didn't, you know, kill the baby, kill the woman or anything. So they offered the protection that women needed, but women really had to find out on their own, right? I feel like it was kind of, you know, a kind of violence against women that we didn't prioritize pregnant women and um, pregnant people in, in the clinical trials for the COVID vaccine. So we covered it on the pod is that the test dummies, are, they're not women's weight for car crashes. Oh. So they oh. only test, like the dummy is a man, so which is why women the have historically died because like, you know, we don't test it. And what about um, the trust gap? You talk about the trust gap. Can you explain that to us and, and, and why the trust gap or knowledge gap, why they, why they come up in play and like yeah. how do you close them or is this just something we study? The really important thing about my book is I'm not talking about cancer or AIDS. Everything is solvable. It's a really big problem that women are not believed. We have a trust gap and a credibility gap. We are not believed about our bodies. Uh, we're not believed when we say we've been raped. We don't, we're not believed when we say we've been harassed. You know, we're not believed when we say we're in pain. It's the default to think that women are crazy, being hysterical, imagining it, and not telling the truth. It's really fascinating. One of the, one of the most radical things I propose in the book is believe women. You know, believe women. Believe women of color. You know, when we tell you we think something's wrong, when we tell you we're in pain, so much of, so much of things go wrong in, in the healthcare world and in, in the world of women's health because we're not believed uh, or taken seriously. So it was actually Maya Dusenberry who in her book, Doing Harm, about, you know, how lazy science and misogyny and sexism are basically killing women unnecessarily. She's the one who identifies that there's a, a trust gap and then there's a knowledge gap. There's also a serious lack of research done on women's health. I mean, going back to the crash test uh, dummies for cars, uh, Ambien was only tested on men. And then they found out that women take an additional eight hours to um, metabolize the medicine. So it was really dangerous for women to drive on Ambien. <laughs> they had to pull it from the market and uh, and change the dosage and you know put that put that warning on. I mean that's really dangerous stuff. And you know I, there's there's all there's a whole section about heart disease as well. But you know I I can talk about that later. But yeah, I mean it has serious you know, consequences and serious impact on women's health. The lack of research. If people want to now what um the two questions that we ask everybody and the first question is. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Hmm. Oh gosh, I have so many. I'm like, I'm so, I'm so nerdy. I like love quotes and I keep quotes and things people tell me. Well, I think it has to be something. You know, my dad always gives the best advice. I wish somebody had told me just to, you know, shut up when I was younger and listen to everything he says. Uh, well, a lot of things have stuck with me, but uh, one thing that he said that really sticks with me is be on time. He always said. And you know what? He's like working government. He's like such a big kind of political icon in Bangladesh. And he is always on time. He's never late. <laughs> and we are like culturally always late. Like Bengalis are kind of notorious for coming like two hours after whatever time you give them. 
so I love that he uh, he instilled that in me. He said that he he, he actually said that's the key to success: be on time. There are a lot of people who are like, I did it all, right? I emailed, called, testified, read her book, read his book, read their book, read all the things. And the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those? Yeah. Oh, you know, it is such a politically depressing time. It can be. But I think what I love so much about America is if you see something, if you want to do something and it's not being done, or if you have an idea and you don't see it, and I don't think it's ever been a better time to, you know, be proactive. I mean, look, let's start a campaign, you know, see what you see, what you need. And it doesn't have to be political. It could just be advocacy. So much is, I mean, look at the stuff that you and I talked about today. I, I didn't know so much of it even last year. So um, I think, I think information is, you know, and I know information and knowledge is power. So a lot of it is just, you know, if you're passionate about something and if you feel like there's an issue that more people need to um, know about, then be that person, you know, be that leader, go, do it, do it and inform and educate as many people as you can. You know, I know it's so cheesy, Gandhi's quote about being the change that you want to see in the world, but it's really true. And uh, that's what I love about, about advocacy and, and just being like a, such a big feminist that I am. <laughs> Go do it. You know, create and and uh, bring about that change that you want to see. Because, I mean, what's the alternative? Are you going to wait for it to happen? Wait for somebody else to do it? No, thanks. No, thank you. Boom. Well, we can see your friend of the pod. It's been great to talk to you and everybody. You need to go get the pain back right now. Thanks for thank coming. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.